Good morning, Chapel. As has been said, my name is Josiah Lawrence. I'm incredibly privileged to get to be with you this morning, to have an opportunity to open God's Word to you. Um, you might see this in the biography that you were handed when you walked in, but my wife's name is Sarah, and we have two little ones, uh, Emily, who's two years old, and then Isaiah, who's three months, but he's kind of a giant, so he's busting out of his nine-month clothing right now. So uh, we really like sleep. Uh, it's one of our biggest things that we enjoy in our household, and uh, we praise the Lord for all 30 minutes of it a day we might get. So really glad to be with you and excited to be talking about community. You can also, you can tell a lot by, about a church by the, the greeting time, and it was really hard to pull you guys back in. There was people coming off the stage to greet people. It was incredibly encouraging to see your actual love and care for one another and in I've been around Cape Bible Chapel for about 15 years as a student with Campus Outreach coming to visit, and then as staff for a while, and, and then just visiting friends, uh, Brett Powell and some others who have been here for a while. And so incredibly thankful for the ministry of your church and humbled to be able to speak God's Word to us this morning, but also incredibly hopeful. I expect that God's Word will bring change in each one of our lives. I expect that this word about authentic community has something to say to each one of us. And you guys may be coming from a ton of different places this morning. You may be coming from kind of a, a relational atheism where you say, I don't really care what God has to say about my relationships. I'm just kind of going to do the wet, what everybody else does. And, or you might be more relationally agnostic. Like, I know he's got stuff to say, but I'm not really wanting to think about it because I'm struggling to have good relationships uh, on my own, and I don't want any extra encouragements. And, uh, but my guess is most of you today are here because you absolutely want to follow Christ, and you want to know more of who he is. You want to know what he has to say about how we can do relationships and how we can live in community in a way that will actually bring transformation to us and life and God's word and the gospel to more and more people in a way that we can really experience it and know who he is. And so if you want to turn to 1 Peter 2, that's where we'll be here in just a moment. And uh, I'm going to pray for us here as we get started that God would Move me out of the way and, and open our hearts to hear from his word. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that you've given us one another, often to be a mirror about how applying your word is going practically in our lives. Lord, and I pray that this morning you would choose to remove me, both my fears and anxiety and, and potential for pride and desire for people to think that I would do a good job this morning. Thank you that it's not about any of those things. Thank you that this morning is about what you want to do in each one of our hearts. Lord, that this morning is about your word. This morning is about how you are the cornerstone of every one of our relationships. Lord, I thank you that you have something to say to each one of us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple quotes for us here as we get started. One from C.S. Lewis that's talking about the the primary nature of our vertical relationship with God and how much oftentimes when our relationships aren't going well, we're trying to fix them with each other. And, and to be honest, the more that we would get our vertical relationship between us and God in the right primary position in our life, the more that it would impact others. He says things better than I do, so let me quote from him now. He says, When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I won't love them at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased. And so if our love for the Lord is growing, we'll be able to tell it in our relationships with others in the way that, 
they're becoming more and more conformed to what God would want them to be. Another brief thing that's encouraging for us as we get going is just to understand that each of us is tempted to make our relationships the end rather than the means. To try to make every one of our relationships about us being fulfilled and getting our felt needs met rather than saying each of these relationships is a tool in God's hand that he is going to use to do something in my life. We typically talk about these are my better relationships, and we don't talk as much, but we have this category of those are my not-so-good relationships. And the reality is God is using each of those to do incredibly important things in our lives. And so without any further ado, I want to get to God's Word this morning. And as we begin to read it in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, I do want to ask us one question. Um, We believe here in a minute as we hear this that God is meant to be glorified in the way we live out our community with one another. And so a quick question just to frame up what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes is if your community, if your family, if your neighborhood, if all they had to look at was the way that you lived in community, would they be able to see who God really is? Or would they see a God who prefers isolation and prefers comfort over really giving and valuing other people? And so let's dig into God's Word, 1 Peter 2, 1 through 12. So put away all malice and all deceit, in hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. And so as we get into authentic community, There's so many challenges, but there's so many possibilities. I've really just got three main points that we're going to draw out as we just walk through these verses. And the first one that I want us to see very clearly in the first three verses is that our community reveals our cornerstone. And so the way that our relationships are set up and our interactions with other people reveals the foundation of our life and where it's set. And uh, just to quickly recap, you you see immediately that we're commanded to put away some things, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. These are all incredibly relational sins. It's hard to just envy by myself on a a desert island, maybe being off the island, I guess. I could still find a way to do it, but I have to imagine other people. Um, And all of these things, they, they involve the way that we relate with one another, and we're immediately being encouraged to put them away. Each of these have the power to destroy community. They also, this is an interesting Reality, they're also assumed to be happening in this church that Peter's writing to. He's not telling them to put them away because they're not happening at all. He's saying to put these things away because they're realities that they're facing. 
many people are struggling with each of these realities in our church. So two things to note from that. One, we should not be surprised if in our interactions with other people, whether church people or folks out in the world, that we would experience these realities. But at the same time, we should never be at peace with any of these in our life. We should be at war saying, God, I don't want these things to be true about the way I relate to other people. And we're We'll learn more and more about this, but we're encouraged to put them away. In the chapter before, the context of this, you know, Peter is writing to this church that's in, under incredible persecution, and they're going through a lot. And so a lot of times when we are in hard situations, when we're being persecuted, that's when some of these challenges begin to arise the most. But in the middle of this, what Peter is encouraging this church to do is to love one another earnestly because we've been born again through a living and abiding word of God. And so Peter is saying, in light of the fact that we are the new person and God has made us new because of Jesus Christ, that affects directly, that vertical reality affects our horizontal love for one another. And he says this pure spiritual milk is that word of God that will grow us up into our salvation. And I I love that phrase, grow us up into our salvation. That's saying this salvation is real, but you have to grow up into it. In a similar sense to someone who has an incredible inheritance, but they have to wait until 18 to actually receive it. It's like you've been given this incredible gift, but you need to grow up so that that salvation becomes your experience and not just your understanding. And it's incredible that we're being called into this. And all of this is in the context of that end of verse 3 where it says, if, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And that's not a small if. That's not a, that's not a small thing. That's describing salvation and knowing God. It's not just this understanding that I'm supposed to be good and I'm supposed to do good things and and God is real, so I need to believe in him. No, it's this experience that you've tasted that he's good. It's like a good meal. And I had a one bite of steak at this place called Captain Anderson's in Panama City, and uh, it was this Nigerian cut and seasoning. And I remember immediately my eyes closed and I started making this mm, sound and everyone started to make fun of me around the table. But it was, it was just subconscious. When I had tasted that it was good, one, I had started doing weird things. Um, but secondly, I was just incredibly in, in that moment just saying, this is what I want more of. And in the same way, when we taste how good God is, we probably just need to close our eyes for a moment and say, I'm, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get more of that. I'm going to do whatever it takes to taste that some more. So that's what the community is all about that we're going to stop about. We're supposed to stop doing these things and be really thirsty. Thirsty for some milk. It says thirsty like a newborn infant. And so like I mentioned when I was telling you a little bit about myself, we have multiple newborn infants that have been in our house. And when I read this verse before and when I first memorized, I thought of it as, you know, Josiah, you should really, you should really want to study God's word. It should be this desire. But that's not really the picture of a newborn infant when they want some milk. The picture of a newborn infant, I won't do because I'd scare you and it's a little early in the morning, but they just start screaming and wailing. They have no uh, pretense. They have no, they're not trying to impress you with, with uh, you know, I don't really need the milk that much. I just go get it because I'm a good infant. No, it's like they are desperate every time just screaming. And in the same way, that's the desperation and the aggressiveness that God is painting in this picture for us of what we should do as we go after tasting and seeing that he's good and then putting these things away and then also as it's about to unpack what community really is for us. With this first point of understanding how community reveals our identity, we see that if we tasted this, that if we've experienced it just a little bit, we want so much more and we're willing to count the cost. 
the things that we need to put aside to count the cost of are these sins. And while it sounds easy on a Sunday morning to say, yeah, I want to stop doing them, there's actually reasons behind each one of those sins. And the reason that we would do them in any situation is not just, oh, I want to be a sinful person or I want to be mean. The reason we do those is because in the moment, they make the most sense to us. In the moment, that sin seems like the smartest, most intelligent thing we can do. And it seems like the only choice we really have at times. And so I want to walk briefly through each one of those so that we can see what it really is that reveals where our cornerstone of our community is and and how in our relationships with one another we see if our lives are built around Christ or if they're built around ourselves and getting our needs met. So just briefly as we walk through them, the first one, malice, is basically this this idea of hatred or frustration or anger towards another person. It often has an idea of wanting to do them harm. And uh, this happens because I'm afraid in some aspect of this person. I'm afraid that who they are and what they're going to do is going to take something from me or hurt something that's important to me. And so the reason we have malice towards others is because we have fear that they're going to take something away from us, whether that's our own pride or our own view of ourselves that sees ourselves highly and they don't see ourselves that way, and so we think negatively of them, or whether it's something really specific of, and I'm afraid that person is going to physically hurt me. Either way, our malice is a natural response to some of those things. And on the other hand, a community built around Christ allows us, because we realize that nothing can ultimately be taken from us. You know, Jesus says not to fear those who can kill the body, but to fear him who can kill the body, but ultimately send you in your eternity to hell. And so the idea behind that is, the people here, they can't do much to me. You know, if you think negatively of me, the reality is that I'm so much worse than you could ever imagine. And on the other side, if you think positively of me, and if I in some way become your friend, the, the reality is that Jesus Christ and what he has done for me is a better friend and loves me and knows me more than you ever could, more than my wife ever could. And so the most important things that I need most in relationship with others, I've already received in Christ. And so that's why, partially, we need to build our community around Christ rather than around ourselves. As we move forward, deceit, which is basically hiding who I really am, and hypocrisy, who is pretending to be someone I'm not. Kind of two sides of the same coin there. Um, Both of those we tend to do because we're afraid we're not good enough, or we're afraid if you find something, if you find this thing out about me that this is true, you you won't have community with me. You'll reject me, and ultimately you'll exist in such a way where I'll be alone. And so I I deceive and I am a hypocrite at times because I believe that I'm too bad to be accepted by others or that I'm not good enough or ultimately that I'm not willing to have integrity in my relationships because I think that I have to fake it to be accepted by you. And, And unfortunately, a lot of folks in counseling even realize they've been faking it to be accepted by themselves, trying to live up to our own standards of who we think we should be rather than accepting what God says about us and for us. On the flip side, as we understand what it looks like to have a community built around Christ, we see that we can be honest with ourselves. We can be honest with others. We don't have to hide because who we are has already been forgiven. As we keep walking through these hypocrisy that I was at the Village Church as a group's pastor there for a couple years in Dallas, and uh, the pastor there, uh, Matt Chandler, he would say about hypocrisy that, Christianity is a terrible hobby. 
that you have to wake up early on Sunday mornings. You have to kind of get dressed up a little bit. You got to at least do a shower or something. You, you have to come in. You, there's things that you're not supposed to do, things that you aren't supposed to do. You got to be nice to people when you don't really want to. It's just a terrible hobby, but it's incredible lifestyle. It's an incredible if it's true, but if it's just a hobby, you might as well go to the lake, you know. And what he says is sometimes we're so busy trying to look spiritual that we're not actually getting to know God and growing into who he wants us to be. And so when our community, when our relationships are built around impressing others, we're so busy trying to keep up this front that we don't actually build community with anyone. And it's only out of a place of being accepted in love that we're able to begin to be willing to risk loving others and getting to know who they really are. Envy and slander are very similar in the sense that when I'm envying someone, I'm, I'm thinking that I need what you have to make me worthy, to make me valuable. And what's incredible about envy and slander in each one of these is that because we've been chosen by God, he has decided that we're valuable to the point of sacrificing his own son. So this question that we're always asking ourselves subconsciously of my worth and in response and in respect to the other people around me, as we walk into a room wondering, will I know somebody? Will I have somebody to sit next to? Will I be accepted? We have a constant and forever answer to that in Jesus Christ, that we are and we have been to the degree that he's willing to sacrifice his son. And so it's pretty incredible to see how much our relationships with one another, our community reveals where our cornerstone really is. Uh, Just as a quick way to understand this and see it a little bit more, I think for many of you this is true, and in my own life, each stage of my life has looked different, but each one has had a very similar reality to it. In high school, I wanted to please people, so I tried to be good enough at basketball, football, and baseball, and, and, and grades. And I had all my different friends in each friend group. And, uh, and then I was kind of weird on the side and liked like video games and stuff that I didn't want to tell my football buddies about, so I had like this other secret group of friends over here. And I basically just tried to perform for each one and not let them know about each other, because if they knew about each other, I felt like I'd be rejected by all of them. And so it was just this plate-spinning thing of trying to basically make sure that I was performing as, as well as I possibly could for each group of people that I was faking it for. And I remember towards the end, I was, someone was sharing the gospel with me. They were beginning to help me read God's word and understand and ask questions about why I was doing the things that I was doing. And I began to ask, who, who am I? What am I even doing here? And, and I came to know the Lord, which is an incredible freedom. But I was still trying to understand and grow up into this salvation. As I went to college and was involved in a college ministry for a long time, I was just trying to perform spiritually. And then as I graduated and got my first job, I wanted to perform for my boss. And then I got married, and oh my gosh, uh, I tried to perform and felt worse at it than ever before. And then I had kids and almost gave up, but still tried to keep performing. And, and then now I get my life from my kids, and, and it's just this confusing, messed up life of trying to perform and earn so that I might be accepted, trying to build my community around what the people around me think about or around comfort. A story in the Bible that does an incredible job of helping us understand this is when Jesus interacts with the woman at the well. He comes up to her and she's drawing water out of a a well and he says, you know, if you had asked me, I would have given you water and you would have never thirsted again. And she looks at him and she's like, you don't even have a bucket. How are you going to get any water out of this well? You don't have a rope, but you don't have anything you would need to give me water. And he says, through the course of their conversation, he 
reveals that she's had multiple husbands, and the man that she's living with now is not her husband, and he, he points out this deep thirst that she has for acceptance in relationship, and that ultimately only his acceptance will meet that need that she is striving so hard to fulfill. And at that moment, she realizes he is Jesus, the Messiah, not just this guy walking by. He is the one that we've hoped for and the one who gives us water that ultimately will quench this thirst. Many of us are going through life looking to the people around us in the situations that we're in as opportunities to perform, to earn others' approval. And unfortunately, it's like we're drowning in thirst. We're drowning, we're dying of thirst. We're in the middle of the ocean and we're just gulping down salt water and thinking if maybe if I drink just a little more quickly, I'll finally be quenched. And the reality with salt water is that it actually makes you more and more thirsty. And so this morning, I hope that we un- as we unpack from God's Word more and more of what community is meant to be and the foundation it's built on, that we'll stop drinking from these other wells. As we think about how to live out, if we believe that our community is revealing this, how to live forward, a couple quick things to consider. One, counting the cost means that I'm willing to be honest about the f- places I'm trying to build my community around. I'm willing to be honest with myself and others. This week, it may be good to have a conversation to think about what are the things that I'm running to when I'm thirsty for a relationship? What do I think I most need? And, uh, and then another aspect of that is, am I willing to do community differently so that I can taste and see that God is good? Am I willing to say, maybe the way the world and everyone around me does it is a little bit unhelpful? Maybe I'll risk doing something differently. And it will require risk. It will require ultimately following Jesus Christ who said he came not to be served, but to serve. And that sounds real pretty on Sunday on a stage, but when I get home about five or six this this afternoon and evening and the dishes are piled up, it's not going to look quite as pretty. It's going to expose my heart, and it's going to show me that if I'm willing to serve, we'll have an incredible community in our home. But if I'm, willing to tr- if I'm trying to make it all about me, then ultimately it will fall apart. Briefly, just as a restatement of that, authentic community has tasted God's goodness and will count the cost to build it around Christ rather than our culture. And then as our community reveals our cornerstone, it just raises the question, are we willing to dig up our old cornerstones and lay a new foundation? Or are we just stuck? I pray that we would be. Our second main point this morning from these verses is that community responds to its cornerstone. Not only does our interaction and relationships with one another show us what we're trusting in, but it's built up from that. In a sense, it follows. It's the foundation that everything's built on. It's the shape of what's uh, becoming all of our relationships. I want to briefly read those verses again, four through eight. And uh, they say as follows, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house and a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Who is the him that we're coming to that it talks about there as we come to him? This him clearly points to Jesus Christ who was rejected by men during his time on earth. He was rejected by the, the spiritual authorities 
of the time, and yet he became the cornerstone in the fact that he died and rose, and in his resurrection became the beginning of a new people, a firstborn among this new people of God that we're going to talk about as we move forward. And even though he was crucified, he rose from the dead. And as John says, as he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. And so his humiliation and shame led to our honor, led to his ultimate honor as he conquered death. Jesus became the source and the foundation for the people of God through his life, death, and resurrection. And now our inclusion in the people of God or exclusion exclusion from it has everything to do with what we think and what we do with this person of Jesus Christ. And so what do we mean? I've been using the word cornerstone and foundation uh, simultaneously and kind of going back and forth. What I mean with each of these is he is where all of the weight of our relationships lie. All of the weight of our relationships lie on him as our cornerstone. Also, he is what cannot be moved. He's this foundation where the surety and the security and the hope a lot of relationships and marriages struggle in light of finances and in light of other hard things that come along. Well, ultimately, all of those are just exposing themselves in hard times as false foundations. And there is only one cornerstone for any relationship in our life. There's only one cornerstone that will not be moved, and that is Jesus Christ. He is where everything in the house comes from, and ultimately the shape of This house that he says he's building us into as living stones is the shape of Jesus Christ. And so our community more and more is meant to be such that when people look at it, they see Jesus. Just like in a marriage, that ultimate community that God's given us um, between man and woman and the way that we interact with each other is supposed to point to Jesus Christ and the way that he loves his church and remind us of that sacrificial love and that true following. And, uh, And it's such an incredible thing. All of our community is meant to point back to who God is. What happens when we come to him is also made clear here in this passage. It says we're being built into living stones. It says ultimately that our identity is changed. That when we come to him, we were these people who were dead in our sins, and now we're living stones who are being built into a house. So there's this holy priesthood and this opportunity to worship and sacrifice and and live for all that God's done for us. Uh, We see here as well that we're not just saved. We become a part of the community of people of God We aren't just individuals who love God and whose lives have been changed. God's vision for us, as we see here in 1 Peter, is something bigger. It's something that we must do together. Um, We are becoming something together that we can't be by ourselves in Christianity. There's, There's no individual Christian in this picture of what God's vision is for what he wants to accomplish and how he wants to get his glory. And uh, I was just thinking for a moment, it's like if... If you had one rock, one living stone, it's not much of a temple. It doesn't matter how pretty the temple is or, or how pretty that rock is, I mean, or how really well-shaped it is and how much it would make a great part of a temple. The reality is that God's saying, yes, all of us are in and you're incredibly valued, but all of you are part of something that's bigger than any of you individually. This community that God's calling us into is more than just, I need to be in a community group. It's the reality of who God is. It's what he's doing. So I want to be connected to other Christians because it helps, because they can help hold me accountable, because I'm encouraged, because they're fun, because lots of other people are better cooks than me. There's a lot of reasons I want to be connected in community, but ultimately I'm desperate for it because God says that his vision for what he's going to accomplish, his glory, if I want to make him known, I've got to do that with other people. I love when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, they'll know you by your love for one another. 
And I love spending time with people that don't know Jesus and talking with them about um, what they believe and why they believe it and answering as many questions or pointing them back to Jesus as many ways as I can. But I remember when I first realized that one of the most incredible apologetics or encouragements that someone who doesn't know Jesus would have to consider Christ was the way that I loved other brothers and sisters in Christ. That really shook me because I preferred to try to be out there spending time with those that didn't know Christ. And to be honest, sometimes Christians can get on your nerves. You kind of expect really, you expect us to be better than we are. I often get on my own nerves because I expect myself to be better than I really am. But I realize that it's not just how much do I get along. It's this higher calling that God has laid out where and I'm showing them God's love in the way that we love one another. And so it's incredibly more important than just things that I feel a need to get some help on. Or if I don't feel a need, I'll just stay by myself. So when we come to him, our identity has changed. We're made from dead stones into living stones. And even from there, we're made into this house, this spiritual house that God's building. There at the end of that passage as well, you see that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame and that there's an honor and a shame there that's going back and forth. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this briefly, this idea of shame and honor. And for those who believe, it's saying that their shame is taken away and instead of that, they're given honor. And for those who don't believe, their shame remains. Their shame and their sin remains. And shame and honor are incredibly important things. Even in psychology today, we're often told that this feeling of shame is wrong and that the shame itself is the problem. And in Christianity, we have a very different reality as we see that our community responds to its cornerstone. Shame and honor are some of the most clear and experiential ways that we'll see that play out. If our cornerstone is Christ, then our experience of community becomes more one of security and acceptance and trust because he's trustworthy and always accepts us and he is our security. And if our community is built around self and to be honest, anything but Christ, our experience becomes more shame where we tend to numb, control, and isolate as our strategies for figuring out how to have better community. We would never say it out loud, but we do it very practically. Why is that the case? And I've mentioned this already, but we rightly feel shame because shame is a result of sin. And so instead of our culture that says shame is the problem, you need to get rid of shame, we would say, no, shame is just like your sense of touch, that when you touch a hot oven, it burns you. The problem is not the sense of touch in your finger. The problem is you're not supposed to touch hot ovens. And that shame is pointing you to something that you need to learn, that you need to see. And in this same sense, in Christianity, we understand that our shame comes from sin and that we rightly deserve it that we rightly don't deserve community. Shame makes us think, if others knew this about me, they would reject me. And the hard truth is that apart from Christ, they would and they should. There's no foundation for forgiveness and repentance and community apart from the reality that we have been forgiven. We should be distrustful of one another apart from what Jesus Christ has done. And so those natural feelings that we have of when we're going to community, I don't know if it's going to be any good or are they going to judge what I'm wearing or is my house clean enough if I'm inviting them over? Those are natural things, but, but we're being called to be a spiritual house, something that's so much more than what would come naturally in Christ. He is the only one who truly deserves to be accepted. He is the only one who deserves to be free of shame. 
And yet he said that he went to the cross. This is incredible. It says that Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. And so there's this future joy that we're hearing of us being brought in to be his people. But he said he was despising the shame. He hates it just as much as we do. Jesus was walking towards the cross. It says at one point his face was set like flint towards what God had for him. But he was despising the shame all the way along. And part of what he did on the cross was he took our shame so that we no longer have to hold it. Unfortunately, our tendency to build community around ourselves does lead to shame. And so we try to, we try to manage the shame rather than um, having a solution and be actually being forgiven. The three ways that we tend to do that is we numb. Uh, in our numbing, in our numbing, what we tend to do is we are afraid to get deeply into any relationship, so we stay at the surface. We glutton ourselves on entertainment or alcohol or something that distracts us. This can be done with more obviously sinful things, or this can be done with things that are really socially acceptable. To be honest, one of the most common ways for those of us who have grown up in church is just to fill our schedule and time with so many activities that we don't actually have time to build deep relationships with anyone. And we're so busy running from thing to thing to thing that we feel like we have a full life, but really it's the furthest thing from the abundant life that God promised us. We look around and we see that we have hundreds of acquaintances, thousands of Facebook friends maybe, uh, a million people who look at pictures of us only when we're at our best on Instagram, and, uh, but we're desperate to have someone that actually knows us. I think one of the most incredible ways that we see this is, is our theology of couches. What do we think couches are for? You know, typically at my house, a couch is for sitting on, not talking to people, and watching TV. That is kind of the goal of the couch. That's why it was made. Uh, it doesn't say that in the owner's manual, but we could probably write it in there at the bottom. But what's incredible is when we begin to see couches as something else, and, and it's really scary sometimes. I remember even recently, my wife and I have been trying to grow in our relationship with one another, and we turn the TV off, and we kind of turn slowly to look at each other and kind of awkwardly, hi, you know, I've been over here on this part of the couch, and hi, how are you doing? And, and we started trying to interact, and we realized how much that we can numb ourselves from relationship and how hard it is to begin to interact. And so uh, it was a little awkward at first, honestly, when we started doing that, but it's become more and more helpful and incredible, the conversations that God's allowed us to have and know each other more deeply. But it's really scary, and it's much easier to numb. Another way that we tend to do that is controlling. Many of us try to take what is potential and make it into certain. This is a lot of times why guys have a hard time asking a girl out until 15 of her friends have said that she likes him already. Um, I don't know how that worked in each of your lives, or maybe she had to come and say, hey, why don't you ask me out? Like, because we want to make sure it's certain before we risk being hurt, because we want to control these situations because we know how common it is to be hurt. It's what makes it so hard to have consistent discipline and interaction with my children. They're just two years old, but they can just manipulate me so easily. Emily, our little girl, is just the sweetest little thing ever. She goes, hold you, Dada, and I don't even know what happened. I just, my whole brain just erased. I just, I just pick her up. But ultimately, if we want to have a deep relationship, I'm going to have to be willing to have hundreds, if not thousands, of hard conversations. And if my acceptance isn't in Christ, I have nowhere to do that from. I give up so easily because I want this little two-year-old to approve of me. Because ultimately, I'm trying to control her opinion of me rather than being willing to say, you know what, I'm going to risk and follow and just do exactly what I think God would want me to do here, which sometimes is a hard conversation. 
all the time means that I'm dying to something I would rather be doing. So we see this all over the place. Our control makes us afraid to talk to others who don't know Christ. Our control makes it where we drive in our climate-controlled cars into our climate-controlled garages, shut the door behind us, run really quickly into the house, sit on our couches, and wave at our neighbors out the window. (laughs) And so we don't have as much community in our neighborhood because it's so much easier to live in a controlled environment. If I go out there and talk to them, what if they think I'm weird? Because we don't do that in my neighborhood. If I go across the street and invite them to a cookout, what if if they don't like my food? What What if they think I'm trying to sell them uh, some kind of Cutco knives or something under the surface. You know, what if, what's, that's going on? And, and ultimately, we wanting, we're wanting to control. And so if numbing and controlling don't work, then we just tend to isolate ourselves. We find reasons not to like most people. We find reasons why no one else is trustworthy so that we don't have to open ourselves up to people. And we hide more and more deeply. I think hiding in technology, isolating ourselves in technology is probably one of the most common and and quickest growing ways that we, that we do this. Uh, now, um, it's so easy to be with people, but to be all by myself on a phone. It's so easy to be with people, but to not be there at all. And to, to look up and everybody's gone. So as we see briefly that our community reveals where our cornerstone is, and our community responds to our cornerstone. If my cornerstone is Christ, it leads me to such a different way of interacting with people than if it's built on anything else. We see that these risky situations where community happens, I can step into them if I'm receiving what I need from Christ. But I can't live an authentic community. I can't be who I really am if I'm so busy trying to put up a front so that all these people like me. Or if I'm so busy trying to control them or numb them or hide from them because they might hurt me. Lastly, And this is what I was most excited about getting to, so I want to hurry. But we see that a community rejoices in its cornerstone. That it's not one of these things where it's like, okay, i got to be built around this. But but no, we rejoice. We get excited about what's going on when when it's built around Christ. If your cornerstone is Cubs, which I've been a Cubs fan for a long time. Sorry for all of the Cardinals fans here. You can fire me or whatever uh, as I'm leaving. But uh, I've seen them lose to most of the teams in the National League. My dad, my dad has actually been to 27 Cubs games live, and they've lost every one of them. I think he is actually the curse, and the goat is actually not even an issue. But uh, sorry for those of you who don't know about all that. But uh, it's incredible if we build our community around the Cubs. And I don't know if you've ever been to Wrigley. There's this section called the Bleachers, and they're their own, they're their own type of human in the bleachers. Uh, It's really hard to describe. My dad is also a pastor, and he sat in the bleachers one time, and about halfway through, they found out that he was a pastor, dumped a beer on him, said, hey, we got a preacher over here, and everybody comes around him, and he was such a uniqueness to that community of people. But uh, building community around the Cubs is a really bad idea. You get to rejoice a few times a year, but mostly you are uh, mourning around the cornerstone of the Cubs. And, and even in teams that win much more often, the reality is if you build your community around that, it breaks down so easily. And I love how this letter was written to a group of people who are under suffering because most of the things that we can lie to ourselves and say my community is pretty good, they had had stripped away from them by the persecution, the potential of being killed for what they believed over and over again. And so the things that we can lie to ourselves about, they were, ha- they were having to be more honest. Yeah, Comfort is a really bad idea because it, it, there's no promise of comfort in life. Financial gain is a really bad way to build community because that can be taken from us at any time. 
And so community rejoices in its cornerstone. I'm going to briefly read for us from those last few verses. It says in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I'm going to read those other two verses in just a minute. Unpacking these, this verse, these two verses would change every one of our lives. If we just believed them just, just a little bit, if we just saw a little bit of the truth that we're about to talk about actually in our lives on a Tuesday, we would be absolutely rejoicing. We would be some of the happiest people. We would have lives that no matter what you did to us, it was wonderful. And so briefly, let me say what's going on here. We are a chosen race. I love the words that are, the specific words that are here. A chosen race. First, we're a new race of people. We're this new creation that God is making. And so the things that could divide us so easily, whether race or color or ethnicity or financial differences or sociological backgrounds or different kinds of families or uh, homeschool and private school or all the different things that could divide our communities, we're saying, no, 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 you are a new race of people. And you have some things in common that we're going to talk about. And the first of those is that you were chosen. And we need to feel that this morning. That creates such an incredible intimacy when we realize that we are chosen by God and that that choosing was not a light thing. It, wasn't, it was no small thing that God chose to sacrifice his son so that he could choose us. And it's an incredible reality that should create such intimacy with the Lord. When I remember every day, God, you picked me. You're not waiting on me to get up and do a good enough quiet time for you to like me. You already picked me when I was asleep. So when I wake up, I wake up chosen. And I can come to you chosen. And I'm, I'm your son because of what Jesus Christ has done. So our value comes from us being chosen, not from our performance. And so all those different ways that I tried to live out and perform for people most of my life, my value comes from the fact that God has chosen me. Along with that, we see secondly that we are a royal priesthood. And so God said, hey, you are royals now. Jesus Christ is your brother and you are part of the family. And along with that comes you are part of the family business. Not just do I want to invite you into intimacy, I want to invite you into purpose. And he says, no, you are a royal priesthood. That means that you're going to live this out. That means that ultimately you are going to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. And 11 and 12 talk about how we do that, that the, it, we're urged as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, and we're to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, not just so that we may be honorable, so that they can glorify God. And so the place this community happens is in the middle of the lost world. The place that this community happens is a chosen people who have been made a royal priesthood, and their priesthood, their sacrifices, which easily ties to Romans 12, 1, which says, bring our whole life as a living sacrifice to God. Our life lived for God in the midst of a lost world is what God wants for us. And I love that he says, you're in the family, you're royalty now as well. Not just that I forgive all of your shame, but I adopted you into who we are and what we're doing in the world now. And then lastly, we see that you're a holy nation. We are a people or a holy nation. And what's great about it is, is once you were not a people and now you are, once you had not received mercy and now you have. And so not only are we a people who are intimately connected to God, not only has he given us a purpose, 
But he said, I've given you a promise. You have received mercy. You are the people of God because you've received mercy, not because you've been good enough. I love when God was talking to Israel and he said, I didn't pick you because you were the greatest of all the nations. I picked you because you were the least. You were supposed to be the last guy picked on the playground, but I went with first to show how great I am. It's incredible. This holy nation of people who have received mercy says, we're humble because we've received mercy, and we've all received mercy. It's not like, oh, well, I received five mercy points, and you got ten, so I'm better. You needed more mercy than me. No, we are all those who received mercy and deserved nothing. We're a confident people because we have nothing to hide. We've already been forgiven of everything we could ever imagine in our lives. And then we're a thankful people because we were desperate for mercy. It wasn't just a, I'm drowning, throw me a life rope. We were dead at the bottom of the water, and we needed God to show us mercy, to bring us to himself. And then lastly, we are rejoicing people because we realize where we would have been, and we remember where we are now. We are in his family, and we're chosen. This is the community that we've been given, a community that rejoices in our cornerstone of Jesus Christ. We've been brought to this place where we can live as a community chosen by God, we can live in the midst of the world. And then we just see where do we rejoice? We rejoice in the middle of this world where we're still sojourners and exiles. We're not yet home, but we're already a people. God has so much more for us in this experience, but we get to do it in here and now as we head towards what he's promised for us. We rejoiced in the midst of the battle. There's a battle that's waging war for our souls, and and we do need community. I've tried to veer away from just our need for it as the reasoning today, but we're desperate. We're in the middle of a battle, and that battle is to believe, ultimately, will I believe this gospel? Will I grow up into this salvation that God's called me to, or will I look elsewhere in each one of my relationships to try to find life and security and happiness? And then lastly, we rejoice among those who still need to receive mercy these Gentiles that it's talking about. The very end, how long do we rejoice? We rejoice until he comes again, the day of his visitation. And so we get to be the people of God, rejoicing in the fact that we've received mercy. We get to have a cornerstone that can't be shaken. And ultimately, we get to live confidently, humbly, thankfully, and full of joy as those who have tasted and seen that God is good. And so let me pray for us. And then we're going to take a few moments to walk through communion together. And so even now as I pray, I encourage you to be focusing your hearts in on what God might have for you as you respond to thinking about community this morning. What would authenticity look like in your own life? Would it be realizing that your community is built on something other than Christ? Would it be, you, maybe you already know that, but actually thinking about are you willing to try to build it around something else? and take a step. Maybe getting into a community group here is just all a great way to practice what we want to be even beyond those groups. Um, or maybe it's saying, hey, I want to walk outside, or I want to turn the TV off for a moment and look at my wife and have a conversation about how thankful I am for her and the mercy she shows me or what we want our life to be. There's so many things that you could walk away. I pray that Holy Spirit would lead you into what he would want you to do with what you've heard from God's word today. So pray with me, please. Father, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are the reason that we've been invited into this incredible community, that you are the one who has died and who lives and who gives us your life. You're the one who has forgiven us. You've accepted us. You know every reason we should not be accepted, and yet you chose to die on the cross 
despising the shame, but for the joy set before you to invite us in. So we pray that as we leave today, that we would more and more step into who you would want us to be, not just personally, but in relationships with other people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. On the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he took some, some bread and some wine, and he looked at those closest to him, his family, his community, while he was on earth. And he broke the bread, and he said, this is my body broken for you, that you might be saved. And he said, this is my blood that will be shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And so as we come together around this table, we want to invite all who are in Christ, all who are believers who have been made new creations. For those of you who may not be a believer today, maybe you're here investigating, maybe you came with a friend, we would love for you to watch and consider. And to be honest, we would love for you to come talk to us or the person that invited you to hear more about what it means to be part of the family of God. But for all those who know Christ and who are known by him, I want to encourage you to come to celebrate and to seriously consider again this salvation that you've been given. And so if you have anything that you need to make right with one another, feel free. Stand up, go, make it right, and come and celebrate. If for any reason you need to wait and make something right and celebrate next week, um, your salvation isn't at stake, but this is just a reminder every time we celebrate communion of what God's done for us and the salvation that we don't just want to have, we want to grow up into it. So take a few minutes as uh, the band will play, and uh, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take. There's also some uh, setups there in the middle, so feel free. Thank you so much, and uh, pray that we would remember God's salvation today.